way through the Ten Commandments, dealing with the Third Commandment, which of course, the Third Commandment itself is, uh, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And then God adds or annexes a reason, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So our catechism asks about that reason, and it says, the reason annexed to the third commandment is that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men. Exodus chapter 20 verse 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. This seems to imply that there are people who will hold you guiltless if you take God's name in vain. There are beings in the universe, namely men, who will not punish you when you take God's name in vain. And so God says, despite what others might do, I will make sure that you will be held guilty if you take my name in vain. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 11, there was an Israelitish woman. She had a son. She had married a heathen. So he was half Israelite, half heathen. This son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. So this is kind of a direct assault, not an indirect violation of God's name, but a direct speaking against. Blasphemy is where you speak against someone. Blasphemy against God, you speak against God himself. And that's what he did. Then verse 14, bring forth him. This is God's determination of this case after the man is put in ward because they didn't know what to do with him. Uh, God said, Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin, and he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well the stranger as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. Now, one of the things in the Old Testament that you find is there are laws that God says apply only to the Israelites. They're unique and special laws where those who are foreigners were not required to observe the Passover, for example. If they wanted to, they could, but they didn't have to. And if they wanted to, they had to get all their males circumcised, then they could draw near. There was a whole set of laws that uniquely applied to Israel. You'll notice this is not such a law. This is a law that God said is applicable not just to Jews and Israelites, but also to strangers and foreigners. If anyone blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. So this is God's basic expectation. Magistrates are ordained for the punishment of them that do evil. Blasphemy being evil... It is punishable by the civil sword. Thomas Vincent, Vincent, in his commentary on the Catechism, talks about uh, how is it that some people aren't punished? Why is it that men won't punish taking God's name in vain? He says, such as profane God's name, for the most part, do escape punishment from men. One, because no laws of men do or can reach all profanations of God's name. So that's pretty... Pretty straightforward. You can't, in human laws, you can't cover every circumstance. You can't punish the thoughts people have in their mind where they speak against God. So, of course, they can't be punished for that reason. Then, two, he says, 
Because such laws as do reach blasphemy, perjury, swearing, and the like grosser profanations of God's name are not executed by many in authority, who oftentimes, being profane and wicked persons themselves, are more ready to punish them that hallow God's name than those that profane it. That's the other side. Sometimes magistrates will side with a person who's a blasphemer because they are. Now, it's very interesting... If you study the history of the persecutions of Christians by the Roman emperors and the Roman proconsuls and the government of Rome generally, what you find is they believed that Christians were blaspheming the gods. They believed that they were speaking against the gods. So the conscience of man has a natural antipathy to blasphemy for whatever he considers to be his gods. And you see this in our day as well. People who pride themselves on toleration and diversity and equity and inclusivity, once you get to their gods, you find out where the blasphemy resides. Don't speak against this type of person, or we will come down with you with as much force and vengeance as we can. We might make you lose your job. We might dox you and publicly say where you live so that rioters can show up at your house and throw cocktails that are on fire. You know, this is the modern punishment of blasphemy. Who is it they're saying you can't blaspheme? Whoever their gods are. Whoever they consider to be their gods. So in our day, for example, you can't speak against George Floyd at one point because he was their god. Criminal thug, that's their god. And if you spoke against him, we'll crush you. You can't speak against our sex perverts, our predators. You can't speak against them or we'll crush you. And if they had the capacity to do it, they would kill you. Because God says, and the conscience says, no blasphemy. Now, if a person himself is profane, then, of course, he has no interest in punishing blasphemy against God. He might have interest in punishing, taking God's name in a hallowed way. He might, as Vincent says, be more ready to punish those who hallow God's name than those who profane it. All right. So, however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 58 and 59. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then... The Lord will make thy plagues wonderful, and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues and of long continuance. So here we see the nation of Israel being warned, before they descend into this place of wickedness, that God requires of them to fear his name. It's a glorious name. It's a name that should strike awe and fear into our minds and our affections. The Lord thy God. That if they would not fear that name, then God would punish them. And he would do so, he says, by plagues. Plagues that if people heard about them, it would cause them to marvel, to wonder, how did that happen? How did that ever come to pass? That doesn't make any sense at all. They would be in wonder at those plagues. And he says, not just upon you, but upon the people that you care most about, your seed. I will punish you and your children. Remember, he says, 
concerning the second commandment that he would visit them to the third and fourth generation. But here he's talking about your seed, your children, great plagues, and those plagues would go on for a long time. Does anybody sign up for those kinds of plagues? Does anybody say, please put my name at the top of the list? I would like plagues that make men wonder how awful they are. I would like plagues on my children. I would like plagues that are great and of long continuance. Of course, nobody says that. That's why God is threatening it, because he will visit. If you don't fear his name, if you take his name in vain, he will visit with judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Here notice, after all the vanity described of the life that man lives under the sun, after the oppression and cruelty that he describes, the evil that men do, he's now summing up the teaching of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it has a couple of major points. First is the fear of God. You must reverence God. That's the opposite of taking his name in vain, is fearing God. Speaking of him respectfully, thinking of him respectfully, fear God. And then the second thing, he says, is the whole duty of man is to keep God's commandments. Don't just say that you reverence God, because he's given you particular ways to show that you actually fear him, and those are called his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Literally, he says, this is what makes man a man. This is the sum and substance of what it means to be a man, is to fear God and keep his commandments. Then he goes on. Why is that? Solomon, why should I fear God? Why should I keep his commandments? Because God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So you might escape the judgments of men. There's one area of judgment. You might escape curses and plagues in this life. But when you die, you will not escape the righteous judgment of God. There will be, as I was mentioning earlier... There are days of judgment, and then there's the day of judgment. And if you don't experience the days of judgment, you will experience the day of judgment. God will bring everything, even if it was secret and there's no human law that can touch you, God will judge it. He will bring it into judgment. And then Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where the apostle says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath, against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now, hardness is literally, it's um, cardiosclerosis is the word that Paul uses there. Cardios is your heart, your inner man. Sclerosis is like turning into stone. So the hardness of the heart is where rather than your conscience and your mind and your affections bothering you about your sins, they're so hard that nothing can get through. No accusation from your conscience will affect you, will move you. That's the idea of hardness. And then impenitent means that God has been, by his providence, showing you this goodness that is intended to lead you to repent of your sins, turn from your sins, 
confess your sins, acknowledge them, and stop living in them. And to the best of your ability and trust in God's mercy, turning to Christ and saying, I will obey anew. I will begin this path of obedience again. And this is a lifelong thing. But for a person with a heart that's been made like stone, hardened over, doesn't listen to its accusations and the conscience, eventually the conscience stops condemning and therefore you're hardened. That person will not repent. They are impenitent. And he says, it's kind of a, an ironic form of speaking. He says that they treasure up something. And usually we think of treasures as like gold, silver, maybe precious stones. They're treasuring it up. And the word here is a thesaurus. It's a treasure chest that you put all your valuables in. But here, it's not valuable, is it? It's treasuring up wrath. Because there's a day, the day of wrath and revelation of God's righteous judgment. You might pass by all these other forms of judgment. You might pass human judgment. They don't punish you. You don't get the plagues. So you think you're good. But there is a day where you're treasuring up for yourself, he says, wrath against that day of wrath and revelation of God's righteous judgment. And if you've taken his name in vain, even in your mind, God says that he will punish you. He will make sure it gets taken care of. And so here we see when we think of the law of God and the justice of God, the intention, one of the reasons God reveals his law to us is so that we might come to the end of ourselves to recognize I have spoken God's name in a dishonorable way. I have thought thoughts that were unworthy of God. I have had feelings and desires that were not in accordance with his fear, that were not in accordance with reverence for his name. And therefore, I am liable to the judgment of God, even if men don't punish me. And so what the law does is it says, there is no hope in yourself. And therefore, if you're going to be rescued, it's not going to be by what you have done in righteousness and the cleanness of your hands or the uprightness of your heart, like we read in Deuteronomy 9. You're going to have to go somewhere else. You're going to have to look to some other way of salvation because your works aren't good enough. So the judgment of God is intended to draw us to repentance. The threat of God's judgment that he will bring every secret thought and every secret work out into the open light of his justice that is a motivation for us to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and to recognize that even my taking God's name in vain which will provoke the wrath of God if I keep it in my impenitent state even that sin God lays on his son for those who believe in Christ he takes the punishment and the bruising that our iniquity deserves and he puts it on the head of his son so that in his death we have life. Through him being condemned as a sinner, we are accepted as one who has always feared God, since Christ always did fear God, since he never needed to repent of his own sins, since he always kept the commandments of God and used reverence for the Father's name. Therefore, that righteousness is imputed to us. We are made to be the righteousness of God in him while he was made to be sin for us. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And so this is a good warning for us, a good encouragement for us. Use, use God's name appropriately to think and meditate on his word, to fear him and keep his commandments, and to recognize that if we do not, there is judgment coming. And if we do not repent, we will have to pay for it. Though men don't make us pay for it, 
though we may not have plagues like are described here in Deuteronomy 28, yet we will have wrath in the day of revelation of God's righteous judgment. <laughs>